0: Good morning, somebody noticed that uh, the word father appears in the dictionary just before the word fatigued and just after the word fathead. So to all of us fatigued fathead fathers, happy Father's Day. You ready for this this morning? Okay, you're gonna stay with me, right? We're gonna talk about fathers today, but I'm gonna take a rather unorthodox path to get there. So I'll, I ask you to please bear with me. I'll get there. It just you're gonna be questioning that along the way. Having spent the last thirty-five years involved in the professional music industry and working, having the privilege of working with talent at all levels. Literally, at times, I was blessed to be with what we would call world-class talent, people who are the best of the best in their field. You can imagine that I've also encountered many of those with talent whose goal seemed to be to utilize that talent to propel them to some level of fame or recognition. And that could be said of any of the arts or maybe any particular field. So it did not take me long after working in that creative environment of the major recording cities of both this country and in Europe to somewhat discover that the talent that I would meet would seem and the people, the talented people I would meet would fall into one of two categories. This is a bit of an overgeneralization, but it's still true. One of two categories. I found them to be either there was the strivers and the non strivers. At least the field of professional music, it it looks something like this. The strivers are typically anxious to talk to you about the last famous person that they worked for or the last um, big record date that they were on. And if I'm honest, it's fun to hear. It is, And, and it's easy to congratulate them and rejoice with their good fortune. And it was either that or they were going to talk about the next big thing that they're going to be doing, which you can tell they are hoping will catapult them to some greater level. And typically, they're, they're willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get there. And you can't help but begin to compare the strivers with the non-strivers. The strivers have a certain angst about them. They're, they're always trying to prove their worth through what they've done or how they've been recognized or validated by other impressive names. And even though they may be currently having their 15 minutes of fame or at least enjoying the spotlight now, you can almost see them reaching for the next rung of the ladder by their words or their actions. And then there's the non-strivers. They're just glad to be there. Typically, they already have a much more impressive and expansive discography and resume than the strivers. Uh, The non-strivers, they've just simply come to do a good job and they understand and respect the process and there's a peace or there's a calm about them. So, in my years of observation, I became very attracted to the non-strivers. I I I loved how settled they were. Usually, they were people who were remarkably talented, but they were not Striving, And one day, these words came out of my mouth. You know what I'm going to say? <laughs> and here's, I don't think I'd heard it anywhere else. Uh, I may have, but I don't think I had. But I just found myself saying these words. Blessed are those who have nothing left to prove. Let's let that kind of drizzle in. Blessed are those who have nothing left to prove. Any similarity between that and Beatitudes is strictly coincidental. There's not a, a, a nervous anxiousness about being recognized and validated and, and, and proving to the world that they're somebody special. They, listen to me, they have learned at a very deep level. Not a surface level, but at a very deep level, what it is to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ every day, in every circumstance, and in so doing, their value system for living starts to look a whole lot more like the Lord Jesus. They don't say, Lord, just just let me go do this one thing that I really want to do, and then I'll come rushing back to abide in you after that. No! Every day and in every circumstance, those with nothing left to prove are abiding in Christ. Now, musicians, people of the arts, listen to me. If God has given you a creative gift then pursue it hard with the passion He has placed within you. It will take work. It will take hard work. And it will demand incredible personal discipline. Because you will know days of discouragement and days of defeat. But do not let that stop you from pursuing the excellence of your gift, whatever field you're in. Please just listen to this old seasoned musician who has been through it all. As you pursue your creative dream, just remember to keep it submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and make it even your greater passion to know what it is to abide in Christ. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10. So many people So many Christians want their five minutes of fame, and they are so willing to step out of their abiding in Christ to get it. So willing to step away from being hidden with Christ in God, according to Colossians 3, to get some fleeting sense of gratification through their gift. So what's all this got to do with Father's Day? Well, just hold on. We'll get there. I promise. The strivers tend to be fleeting in my 35 years of watching this. The non-strivers tend to last much longer. They live better lives, and they make much better life management decisions. Strivers may get their moments and be done Non strivers have encountered the truth and are working with the truth, and they understand true godliness. And when there is truth, it lasts long because don't ever forget this truth does not have an expiration date. I said, truth does not have an expiration date. Truth will prevail when all of the lights go off. So I want to take you to the word of the Lord today to a person, a dad. In the book of Acts, I want us to explore how both in his season of activity and in his season of less recognition, he knew what it was to abide in Christ. His moment, his season of activity came in Acts chapter 6, chapters 6 through 8. His name, Philip, and I want us to read about his moment where he literally explodes on the scene and it looks like he has very much arrived. And in these chapters of Acts 6 through 8, he becomes one of the leading characters along with Stephen. And at first, we see that he is chosen by the big 12, by his own peers, to be one of the first deacons in the church. My goodness, what an honor. And so that's a pretty big deal. That happens in Acts chapter 6, which you can read for yourself. So he's chosen by the 12 disciples to be one of the first deacons of the church, which is cool enough. But then we get to Acts chapter 8, and we see his stock value and his visibility escalate even more, because now he goes to Samaria in the midst of persecution, and he preaches and wins an entire city right here, right there in Samaria with signs and wonders following. Look with me at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 5. Philip, for example, says, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. Obviously, we see there were signs and wonders following his his ministry there. And so there was great joy in that city. This man, Philip, had had an incredible impact on an entire city. And then it gets even better. You look in verse 9. Because the, t- the town occult leader, he gets saved. His name is Simon, and he gets discipled by Philip, Acts 8, 13. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he began following Philip wherever he went. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. So this is a moment for Philip that is absolutely Incredible. It's all happening for him. He's, uh, he's on the first board of deacons of the church. He's leading citywide revivals. He has seen multitudes get saved. He's performing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. All the Christian TV programs are trying to book him on their show. That may not have been in there. He leads the number one occult guy to the Lord and he disciples him. Can it possibly get any better than this for Philip? The answer is yes. Let's keep going. Now in verse 26, he talks to angels. How cool is that? And the angel tells him to get up and to go south down the the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip leaves the revival in Samaria, and he goes on a desert road. And he's about to talk to someone who's who's literally going to change a continent. And the man he's going to bump into is called the Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip talks to the Ethiopian eunuch who gets saved, and that eunuch goes back to his home country. In fact, many historians believe that this man returning to Ethiopia was the entrance of the gospel to the continent of Africa. Any Africans in the room this morning? I know we got him in other parts of the building. You're here because of this Ethiopian eunuch today, many believe. So Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. And by the way, if you have not been baptized, what on earth are you waiting for? It's time to get baptized. And the church said, but wait until you see the finale of Philip's season of fame. This season of time when everything was happening for Philip to put him right in the spotlight. Everything is going together. It's incredible. No baptismal service like this we've ever seen So get this, Philip witnesses to the Ethiopian eunuch that will ever change the the, the spiritual tone of Africa. He baptizes him, and then look with me at verse 38 of chapter 8, which says this. He, the eunuch, ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch never saw him again but went on his way rejoicing. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and seen that? Come on, tell the truth. Now, I don't know, and you don't know, if Philip shoots up into the sky, or if he just vanishes, or or, or what it was, but it was quite an impressive finale. And look with me now at the last verse of chapter 8. It's verse 40. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus. He preached the good news there, And in every town along the way. And here's what I want you to hang on to and put it in the buffer of your brain for just a few minutes. He preached in every town along the way until he came to where? Caesarea. So, where do we leave him? We're leaving him here in Caesarea. Hang on to that. We have observed Philip's grand moment in life, he's a deacon wins an entire city, sees signs and wonders, leaves the revival, meets the Ethiopian eunuch along the way, baptizes him, at which time one of them comes up out of the water and the other gets completely snatched away to the city where he also preaches the gospel. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. At this point, church, I ask you to put your turn signal on because here's where we're turning a corner. Because here's what I believe the Bible is saying to us On this Father's Day of 2016. At this exact point of the story. Philip vanishes. From the pages of scripture. After all the stuff we've seen him do. In chapters 6 through 8. After all the visibility he experienced. After all the ladder climbing he was allowed to do. He literally vanishes. From the pages of scripture. For 20 years. And we hear nothing. About him. Until. Later on in the book of Acts, 20 years later, he reappears. By now, Paul is saved. All kinds of things have happened. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this little verse shows up in Acts chapter 21. You need to go? He's going to go dedicate some babies in the Swahili service. Do a good job, Josh. I know you will. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. And we see Philip in Caesarea 20 years later. And nothing else about him has been in Scripture since we've seen him snatched away at the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8 until now. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of something that I know you know, but it bears repeating, and it's this. Real Christians don't need a stage or an audience to live for God. did Did you hear that? Real Christians don't need a stage or an audience to live for God. You don't even need a church building. I think Gerard said that this morning. You don't even need a church building on Sunday to worship God. You can worship God anywhere and on any day of the week. And as great as the worship is here at Bethesda that we all enjoy, if this is what you have to have to be able to worship, then you got a problem. Since he brought his daughter up, I'm going to bring my daughter up. I mean, not physically. I'm going to tell you a story. Sheridan and Christopher, her husband, by virtue of his assignment in the U.S. Army, moved to Pittsburgh uh, three or four weeks ago. And uh, she's been adjusting to a new lifestyle because she was involved heavily in work here, working 14 hours a day, and she's right now on leave and not having to work. So she is exploring her culinary side. And she's sending pictures of these lovely meals. It's the salmon with this asparagus running through it. And it's, the presentation's incredible. It's really, really nice. And we, I said, oh, that's really good. Am I making you hungry? And then the next day was another picture of a, this pasta dish she had done. That was, It was just exquisite to look at. And then the next day, she sent us a picture of a muffin tin that looked like it had been in World War III. <laughs> Something that may have been chocolate at one time, exploded in that muffin tin. And she said in there, here's what she said, Today, I learned a very important lesson. Baking powder and baking soda are not synonymous. (laughs) And all the women said, You've learned that lesson. So... um, So they're in Pittsburgh, and they're looking for a church. This dad's heart is glad that that was one of the first things that they began to do. And so three weeks ago today, they visited a church that I got a recommendation on for them, and it was nice, and they enjoyed it, but it's about 45 minutes to an hour away from their home, and they knew the reality was that would be difficult for them to get involved the way they would want to, and so they enjoyed the service, but that's probably not going to be where they settle. So last week... They found a church very close to their home, within five to ten minutes, and they decided they would go there. And she said, "Dad, it's a very, you know, it's it's a very small church," and uh, they went in. And besides them, there were 20 other people there, and the next youngest one to them was about 65 in in the service. And so, you know, there, there's some realities there of of what would happen in terms of their their possible involvement. In all honesty, she told me yesterday, she goes, I really feel bad not going back there. And knowing the two of them, it wouldn't surprise me if they did go back there. So today they are visiting another church that I was able to find for them, and it's not too far, and and that may all work well. But the interesting thing was about, we're talking about worship here. The interesting thing was, she said, Dad, what we're not finding is any place with the music like we have at Bethesda that I grew up with. And I said, yeah, babe, you may find something that you will enjoy, but it's a little different here because God has blessed us in this place. Amen. Oh, come on. Amen. I'm thankful that Sheridan and Chris, they know this. They know that worship is not based upon how good the music is. It's, it's because we can, we can worship any place and any time. It's not just our Sunday morning experience. It's part of our seven-day-a-week experience. Can you affirm that today, church? Do you talk like a Christian when you're outside this room? Do you walk like a Christian in your daily living and when you're at home and in your neighborhood? And so here's the question we've got to look at today. Twenty years later, it's about Philip. We know all that he did in chapters 6 through 8. We know about his bright, shining moment and when the favor of God was upon him. And all the things that happened that I've already rehearsed for you. Being a deacon, leading the crusade, signs and wonders, winning people to Christ, baptizing the Ethiopian Union, all of that. But what about now? What about this dad now? What do we find out about him since he has disappeared from Scripture? What can we learn about him now that the bright light that seemed to be shining on him from heaven doesn't seem to be so bright and shining anymore? Is he still serving Jesus? Is he still worshiping God? Because real godly people do what they do whether anybody else is watching or not. You're not listening to me today. For you see, they've reached the place where they have nothing left to prove about themselves. For To real godly people, the only audience that really matters, the only audience that really counts is Jesus and Jesus only. That's all that matters. And that's why 20 years later, this story is going to bless you. And it will encourage all you fathers and grandfathers today in the house, because now we're going to go to Acts chapter 21, we're 20 years later, and we're going to look at just two verses and have a couple thoughts to share with you. Looking at verse 8 of chapter 21, Paul is speaking, but Luke is writing. You're going to see the word we in the text here, and this is a, a clear indicator that this is a, tru- a trip that Luke was on with the apostle Paul. Some theologians literally call this the we section, um, but just understand that the we is Luke and Paul. Luke cha- uh, a- Acts chapter 21, starting with verse 8. The next day, we went on to Where? Who who did we leave there a while ago? The next day, we went on to Caesarea. It's where we left Philip. And we stayed at the home of Philip 20 years later. We stayed at the home of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Now, some of your versions of, Bible, of the Bible are going to say he had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. And so, just think about it, church, 20 years later, and this is what we see. Now, how many of you know a lot of stuff can happen in 20 years? There's a lot of water that goes under the bridge. And there's more than a few opportunities to be derailed from the Christian life. And what we ought to be asking today is this. Is the guy that was chosen as a deacon, the guy that was, that was preaching citywide crusades and healing the sick and discipling the occultant and, and, and the guy who led the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord, is that guy still serving God today? Or was that just a moment that he was shining in And he said, to points at this juncture we see in his life. Number one. I look at Philip 20 years later, and I see this word. I see the word balance. What we clearly see is this. To Philip, his home life was just as important as his church life. And let me tell you this. That's tough in the ministry. It's very tough in the ministry. Now, Philip is in the city of Caesarea for 20 years. Who else is in that city? I'm so glad you asked that. Because I'm going to jump you back to Acts chapter 10, where it says, In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. Now, this man, Cornelius, eventually becomes the first Gentile to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Cornelius hears from an angel, and then God sends Peter. And the Holy Spirit falls on all who were listening to the message of the gospel Peter was giving. So now the gospel is moving to the Gentiles and they are receiving the Holy Spirit. And here's the part of that that catches my attention when you look at the whole of it. I'm thinking about Philip being in Caesarea, living there now for 20 years. But I'm reading that when Cornelius, who also was in Caesarea, was needing to hear the gospel and his his people were to receive the Holy Spirit... God dispatches who? Peter, according to verse 8 of chapter 10, who is in Joppa, which is 20 miles from Caesarea. Hmm. When all the while, Philip was right there in town. He was right there. Go figure. Huh. So it's a fair question to ask. Why didn't God just use Philip, who's in town, instead of calling on Peter, who was 20 miles away. Now, understand that in that day and time, 20 miles was, you know, it was 20 miles. Now, remember all the great things Philip had done back in chapter 6 through 8. Why don't we just call on him to introduce Cornelius and his household to the gospel? I wonder why. I think it's for this reason. That... God sees Dad, listen. God sees raising your family is just as important as witnessing to Cornelius. Are you listening? Or are you walking out on me? Raising your family to live for Jesus is just as important as leading everybody else to Jesus. To preach This incredible gospel around the world, but fail to make it clear to your own kids is unimaginable. Pastors, you have to make sure your home is together in order to be an effective pastor. And let me tell you something, that's not always easy. We as pastors are under as much attack as anybody, maybe more. We fight the same battles everybody else does. Trust me, the enemy is no respecter of persons. How many know that's true? He doesn't say to his little minions, oh, Dan and Becky are the senior pastors of Bethesda. We can't touch them. Are you kidding me? Jesus himself was echoing the words of the prophet Zechariah when he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So why wouldn't the devil take a whack at Becky and Dan as often as he possibly can? Because if he does that, let me tell you how this works. It has an effect on all of you which is why you need to keep praying for Dan and Becky. And I know many of you do, and we're so grateful. We hear that every time we walk in the doors of the church, that you're praying for your pastors. Let me just say it plainly. Praying for Becky and Dan is as much a protection for you as it is for us in the realm of the Spirit. Did you understand that? It's as much for you as it is for us, according to the Word of God. So all we're saying is, don't stop praying. And here's what's fabulous. When Paul needed a home to go to, he chooses Philip's home. And Here's what that tells us. That Philip wasn't some retired, bitter pastor who was burned out, end up hating the ministry after 20 years. That's clear to us by what we say, see in little tiny scriptures here. There's no record of him embezzling money or having any sort of indiscretion that would disqualify him from ministry. He's not divorced, living with his fourth wife, nothing like that. He's not some cynic who hates people and hates the church. No, it was a normal home. And Paul goes, if we're going to stop somewhere, let's stop at Philip's house. And there's a scripture Paul gives us in 1 Timothy which says, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Some people are worse than unbelievers. I'm going to tell you the truth. I've had to tell a few men that never comes with joy and gladness. And they get mad at me. But it's the truth of the Word of God. If you don't care for your relatives, especially those of your own household, you have denied the faith and you're worse than an infidel. That's what God was saying through Paul. You being a minister and leader in your own home, Dad, has to take a priority in your life. How can you lead people if you can't lead your own home? And here is a home that Paul was comfortable going to, the home of Philip. And God said, let Philip work on his family. I'll go get Peter. He's 20 miles down the road, and he can go give the gospel to Cornelius. He can do that job. And why is that? Because, Dad, God places value on your position in the home. Now, lest it looks like I'm beating up on dads, I never get to preach on Mother's Day. So I'm going to say this. Mom, don't make it difficult for him to do that. Preach it, Dan. They don't like it, but preach it either. Mom, listen to me. God designed your husband to lead your home according to his own rhythms and proclivities of life and not according to the way that you have fashioned he should do it. Don't make it difficult for your husband to be the spiritual li- Don't have the list of rules of how you think he ought to do it. I would say this. Get off his case about how you think it ought to happen and spend those energies on your knees praying for your husband in Jesus' name. winning friends here. Am I telling you the truth? You want me to find something else to preach this morning? All right. Because I got more. I'm not done. What time is it? Oh, my goodness. At the Olympic Games in Paris in 1924, and no, I was not there. The sport of canoe racing was added to the list for the first time at the international competition. The favorite team in the four-man canoe race was the United States. One member of the team was a young man whose name was Bill Haven. As the time for the Olympics neared, it became clear that Bill's wife would also give birth to their first child by the time Bill would be competing in the Paris Olympics. In 1924, there were no jetliners. From Paris to the U.S., only slow-moving ocean vessels. And so, so Bill found himself in a dilemma. Should he go to Paris and risk not being at his wife's side when their first child was born? Or should he withdraw from the team and remain behind? Bill's wife insisted that he go on to Paris. After all, he'd been working toward this for the last 20 years of his life. It was a, the culmination of a lifelong dream. Clearly, the decision was not easy for Bill to make. Finally, after much soul-searching, Bill decided to withdraw his name from the competition. He remained behind so he could be with his wife when their first child arrived. For you see, Bill considered being by her side a higher priority than going to Paris even to fulfill a lifelong dream. Well, it went like this. The United States canoe team won the gold medal at those Paris Olympics, and Bill's wife, was late in giving birth to their first child. In fact, she was so late that Bill could have competed, won the gold, returned home with even another month before the baby would be delivered. And all the women groaned. What a shame, people told Bill. but Bill said, I have no regrets. The child born to Bill and his wife was a boy whom they named Frank. And 28 years later, in the 1952 Olympics, Bill received a cablegram from his son, Frank. This time it was sent to him from Helsinki, Finland, where the 52 Summer Olympics were held. And this is what that little boy child that Bill stayed home to see born wrote to his dad. He said, Dad, I won. I'm bringing home the gold medal you lost while you were waiting for me to be born. Frank Haven had just won the gold medal for the U.S. in canoe racing, and he gave the medal to his dad. Raising those four daughters that Philip was raising was just as important to him as doing any and everything else in the ministry. For you see, he had nothing left to prove. There is a balance, dad, between ministry and home life. Number one, balance. Number two, the second word that comes to my mind is current. Not only balance, but dads, we must be current. I love the fact that it says Philip the evangelist. Not Philip the deacon, not Philip the baptizer, not Philip the Samaritan revival leader, but Philip the evangelist. And haven't we all grown up hearing stories from our dads that are 30 and 40 years old? You dare not ever say anything about going to school because you immediately get this oh, I remember the day when I walked to school uphill both ways. I never figured that out. And I walked barefoot. In the snow, in the ice, in the sweet, and in the rain. How many of you ever got that story? And if you ever complained about food, here's what you got. Oh, you're complaining about the broccoli. When I was a boy, I used to eat beans for every meal. We had bean soup. We had bean sandwiches. We had bean bread. We had bean steak. And we had bean dessert. Stop complaining about the broccoli. Be thankful for it. Lift your hands and praise God. Oh, Dad, there's Dad. There's nothing on TV. Nothing on TV. When I was a kid, we didn't even have TV. We went outside. We found a stick and a ball and an old hubcap for home plate. And we played ball till the sun went down. Now kids have 3,000 channels and still can't find anything on TV. You always get the stories from three and four decades ago. And if anybody would have had stories, church, it would have been Philip. Stories? This guy had stories. Yeah, I was the first deacon. Uh Uh-huh. Did you say Samaria? Let me tell you a story about Samaria. Philip could have said that place was never the same after that preach, after I preached in Samaria. My Lord, did I preach in Samaria. Oh, and did I ever tell you when I used to run behind chariots? I did that before there was Nike. I did that before there was Adidas. There was Philippe. That's what I was running on. Oh, and can you imagine? Dad, we're doing water baptism. Water baptism. Did I ever tell you about the Ethiopian? Yeah, Dad, about a hundred times. I baptized him and he came up, but when I came up, I flew away. But our text says he's not Philip the baptizer. He's Philip. The evangelist. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that he's current. He's not telling the same stories over and over. It means that Philip is still witnessing. He's still leading people to Jesus. He's not telling the old stories of 20 years ago. He's telling what God is doing now. Will you allow me to encourage you fathers and grandfathers today? You can do this. You can do this. Oh, Dan, it's just not my wife. You can do this. When you are teaching your children and your grandchildren, tell them that our God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Jesus himself said that in Luke chapter 20. That's why your kids need to go on missions trips and send them to camp. Oh, my goodness, that didn't look like the camp I went to that we saw a while ago. Nothing like it. We had bugs in our places we slept, whatever they were called. That's why your kids need to go on mission trips and go to camp, any place where people are passionately seeking the Lord. We want our kids to hear stories of the miracles that Jesus is performing today. You can tell them when God provides financially for your household. Tell them when God has healed someone. Speak of the redeeming power of God to change lives today. I know it's wonderful to tell the stories from 20 and 30 years ago. And I've told my children the healing of my grandmother. Phenomenal things that God has done in the past. But they also need to know that He is Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still doing wondrous things in the now of our human experience. Bless his name. When was the last time you sat down with your kids and told them of the hand of God in your life? You know what, kids? We should have been dead. I've told you my story three times. I should have I been dead. But God. We shouldn't have even had this house. We are blessed to have this food to eat. But God. But God. Your children need to understand, your grandchildren need to understand what it means to say, but God, God has provided, God has protected, God has seen to it that we are blessed beyond what we deserve, but God. Fathers and grandfathers, let your kids know what God is doing now, today, not just what He did two decades ago. Our God is current, and He's always working on our behalf. And dads, it's our job to continue to talk about it and make sure that our children understand that everything that they have is only because of the hand of God on their life. Everything they have. And Philip was current. He was an evangelist winning people to Jesus in his current day. Not only from this do I see balance in Philip, not only do I see that he's current, but finally... I see that he's deliberate. could use the word intentional, but he's deliberate. Let me explain. When I go back to Acts chapter 21, verse 9, that told us this. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. As I said, some versions say he had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. This man had four... Virgin, unmarried daughters who are prophetesses. He wasn't just touching Ethiopians and Samaritans. He was touching his own kids. How many know you don't get four virgin prophetesses by accident? I am boring you today. You've got to do something to see that happen. Dads, listen to me. You don't just say, hey, I provide the money that puts the bread on the table. No. Men, we better have more to our leadership than I pay the bills. Virginity and ministry of prophets doesn't come without somebody in that house doing something right. Somebody was praying. Somebody was standing in the gap. Somebody was holding the enemy at bay. Because you will not raise virgins who are prophetesses by accident. It takes work, and you have to be deliberate and intentional about it. And God simply said by his actions, okay, Philip, you did the work in Samaria. Now, it's time to do the work in your home. So you stay home, Philip. I'll, I'll get Pete. He's down the road. And that will work out just fine just fine. I want all the fathers and grandfathers in the room to stand. Please, right now. All the fathers and grandfathers stand to your feet. No one leaving the room. Don't disrespect the house of God. I recap this this way, gentlemen. What God wants from you as a father and as a husband is for your wife to be secure and that your family is more important than your job or your ministry. I have been privileged and blessed to be married to that lady for 41 years. And I'm going to tell you the truth. There's not a morning that I awake, my first thought is not about the church. My first thought is about her. Even before she awakes, okay, now what's her schedule today? Do I know where she's going today? What is it she might need me to do today? That's my first thought. And I'm no hero. And I'm a man who has made many, 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 many mistakes. But that's my first thought every morning. And then it goes to other places after that. What God wants from you as a father and a husband is for your wife to be secure. That your family is more important than your job or your ministry. Also, your wife, you need to have balance. Your wife and children need to know that he's not Just the God of the past. Don't talk about just what happened. You can talk about it, but not just what happened when you were a child. But that he is a current God who is working miracles right now in your life. The fact that you are standing, that you are breathing, that your heart is beating in your chest, your lungs are working, that you were even able to stand. When I called for you to stand a moment ago, that you were even able to do that. All of it is because God has given you life and breath and health. And your children need to know, and you can do that so easily. The simplest thing at a meal table, here's what the Lord has provided. And lastly, I don't care who told you to watch out for child number two, that he's going to be the black sheep. I want you to forget all that stuff. I don't care who spoke in negative words over this child or that child of yours because they saw some thing that the kid did that was stupid. It doesn't matter you forget all that stuff, and you simply say this, I'm going to believe that God is going to raise up these children to live for God. These kids are going to walk with Jesus. Our kids are going to stay sexually pure in an overwhelmingly promiscuous age. God can do that. Gentlemen, you serve a God who's able to do that. Philip had nothing left to prove except to be faithful to his God and faithful to his family. Dads and granddads, you can do that too. Pastor Brent, come and help me because we're going to pray. We're going to pray three things. Number one, I'm going to pray and I want you to join with me in just a moment. For God to protect your kids and your grandkids physically. We're going to pray for that because I know you all want that and it's not difficult to get you to pray for that. Number two, for God to protect them spiritually. And number three... For God to protect their destiny. He knows the plans he has for that child. That child may be wandering as far from God today as he could possibly be, but God is a God who can work miracles. Nothing is too hard for God. I've seen God, and many of you have to, bring the most wayward child back to the fold, back into the church, back to living for Jesus and be on fire for God. And we're going to pray that God can do that even for that wayward child. Is anybody with me today? Ladies, would you stand and join us as we pray. If your husband is near you, take his hand. I don't care if it's been 20 years, take his hand. <laughs> Becky Sue, come here. I need your help. This leg is tired. <clears throat> you want to say something? No. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to, I'm all preached out and they're hungry and want to go home. So, I love you. Now, let's do this. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Come on. You're holding that hand. Lift your hand. Everybody lift your hand to the Lord. We are so thankful today that we have one that we call our Father. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you are the perfect, flawless, sovereign God who has more than proven to us what fatherhood is all about. So today we bring our children and our families to you. We're asking you, Lord, to let the smile of your face rest upon them. We're praying specifically, God, protect our kids physically. Let no harm come to them in the name of Jesus. Come on, church, pray with me if you're in agreement. Touch them in Jesus' name, those that are struggling physically today. Lord, would you heal them in the name of Jesus? We've seen you do it, and we know that you can because you are a current God. God, we're asking not only to protect them physically, but as dads and as grandfathers today, we're asking, would you protect our kids spiritually in this Age when every evil, vile thing is so accessible to them and would permeate their hearts and minds and come to them. Lord, you are the only one who can do it. Only the Lord can do it. Would you guard their hearts? Would you ignite a fire within them to cause them to love Jesus even more? Give them a passion for Jesus today. Protect them spiritually in the name of Jesus. Finally, Lord, we ask that you protect their destiny. Let their steps be ordered of the Lord. Whether we understand it or not, let their steps be ordered of the Lord, guarded, guided, protected by you and only you. And we thank you, Lord, that when we ask these things and we say it in the name of Jesus, that your ear is not deaf to us today, but you hear the cry of the hearts of these dads and these grandfathers including mine. Lord, protect our children today. Give us a generation that will rise up and call their parents blessed. Give us a generation that will be on fire for Jesus, that we can hand the baton to. Give us spiritual descendants that we hand the baton to them and they will carry forth the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will be appropriate to their day and their generation. We know that you can do it because the church belongs to you and it's in your hands. And for this and all the blessings that you've given us today, we give you praise. And we say, blessed be the name of the Lord as we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. Put your hands together and bless the name of the Lord. Come on, bless the name of the Lord.